A great blessing, isn't it, to come together in an opportunity in which we can gather in the peacefulness and the serenity of a Sunday afternoon such as this to remind ourselves of those things which are timeless, those things which are truthful, and those things that will certainly point us toward the grandeur and the marvelous character of heaven. We're always thankful for the health that God allows us to have to assemble in times like this. And you may notice from the title of the lesson tonight, we're going to attempt to look at a few connections between the Word of God, especially God Himself, and the nature of the science known as astronomy. As we do that, our goal, quite frankly, shall be this, to fortify, to strengthen, to in fact move our faith forward, edifying it very notably in the nature of something, several things really, that astronomy puts before us. The opening slide, a very gentle introduction to remind us of this. There are various sciences. There's chemistry and physics, one very dear and dear to my heart, of course. But there's also astronomy and oceanography and a whole host of others. And yet, as we reflect upon any of them, we would quickly agree that the Bible is not a textbook in any one of them per se. But when the Word of God does make statements that relate to each one of them, it certainly is the case that we can have full confidence and assurance in what the Bible does say. Tonight, as we come to the subject of astronomy, I would suggest we begin by at least making some identifications, almost definitions really. But as we do that, it will prepare us for some of the observations we shall make in the remainder of the lesson tonight. First of all, astronomy, if we just merely attempt to define it, I thought first we would just use a common definition taken from an ordinary Webster's Dictionary. You'll notice there it relates to the science of the heavenly bodies. But to go even beyond that, I think it's far more notable to give some thought to what about the word itself. The word astronomy comes from really a composition of two words. Astron, which has relation to star, and nomos, which means law or arrangement. And thus, to put those two things together, if you make reference to astronomy, you really are referring to the law of the stars or the arrangement of the stars. That's literally what that word designates. With that in mind, at this point, aren't we all amazed as we peer into the heavens, as we reflect upon that which even our unaided eye can see? If you ask some scientists, some astronomers of these particular days, oh, how many stars are there in the totality of this universe? Clearly, this specific number is beyond the knowledge of the human family at this point, and perhaps always shall be. But most would probably estimate it to be somewhere on the order of, what I've asked you to notice, 20 trillion billion stars. That's clearly a lot of stars. As you and I would perhaps look into the night sky with the unaided eye, we can perhaps see five to 6,000 at most. And yet, with telescopes, with other astronomical devices, it seems now estimated clearly would put the number somewhere at least in the ballpark of that massive number I just asked you to note. And yet, as you give thought to that, consider again the human family and our position on planet Earth is such a small part of the universe at large. Near the bottom of that slide, clearly there are so many astronomical phenomena 
which are rather easily and powerfully understood. There are many things about the stars that we seemingly know fairly well, but it's also true, isn't it, that we've identified constellations and many other celestial phenomena. There's black holes and quasars, there are pulsars and a whole host of other things that sometimes excite our imagination and sometimes are rather thrilling to even consider. Perhaps one last thing would be this, the human family over the course of study and discovery and appreciation, has come to have sufficient knowledge that in many instances a rather amazing set of predictions can be made. Scientists can now tell us when the next lunar eclipse will be, when the next solar eclipse will be, and who will be blessed to see it. Isn't it true that all of that is known exceedingly well? The phases of the moon can be added to that list. Our calendars now will dictate years in advance what the phase of the moon will be at a certain month, at a certain day. Doesn't that testify to the fact there is a law of the stars? It follows a regular pattern. It follows that which can be understood and our mathematical understanding can allow us to make rather careful observations and predictions. It is for all those reasons that I would at least suggest perhaps a few pictures can be a part of this particular lesson at least to help remind us of some of the majesty of astronomy. The Hubble Space Telescope was a telescope that the human family chose to orient the following way. You might well understand that if a telescope is on Earth, it has to, in fact, peer through the atmosphere of Earth, and so the images that are often seen with it are rather fuzzy and unresolved. Many decades ago, it was at least considered that if it were possible to place a telescope above Earth's atmosphere, that the images such a telescope could take would not only be very resolved and clear, but they might well make available images which could simply never be seen by land-based telescopes. And so some of the images tonight will actually be available. And by the way, they're freely available on the Internet. Just look up NASA's website. And so in a moment, some of the pictures we'll see. I'll remind you then about their origin from the Hubble Space Telescope. Observation number one, perhaps even lesson number one. As you and I have already noted, the very mention of astronomy makes reference to an arrangement, a law. And you and I know well that there can be no law. There can be no arrangement without there was one making the arrangement or one to set in place the law. I've chosen to entitle this one, The Designer. That is to say, if there is apparent design, if there is obvious design, if there is evident design, who designed it? This universe in which we live. Note some of these observations. I've already mentioned that the name astronomy suggests the, apparent, the appearance of a law. The remarkable mathematical nature of astronomy. The easiness with which even our students, young students, can now at least learn to make simple predictions about the nature of our planets, the nature of certain aspects of the solar system. And that is true because of the law, the lawgiver, the one who put all those things in place. About the middle of that slide, why don't we look at some of the passages in the Word of God that testify to the nature of that law in astronomy. In Jeremiah 31, verse 35, 
In the days of the long ago, the prophet Jeremiah, as God spoke through him, he highlighted the rule, R-U-L-E, note the word, of the Son. In other words, there is a specific law, a rule, if you please, that relates to the orderliness, the pattern, and otherwise the behavior of the Son. Now, thankfully, you and I know rather well about the character of such a thing. We have known to observe it throughout the nature of our lifetime, haven't we? In Psalm 136, verse 8, again, that rule is highlighted again, and there it is spoken of as something for which we should praise God. He is due our praise, among other things, because of the regularity attached to the sun and the moon. I suppose all of us in our finer moments would realize that, think how chaotic... Think what kind of life it would be if the sun and the moon's motion was unpredictable, absolutely chaotic. You never knew from one hour, certainly one day to the next, what sort of placement in the sky it would be, what sort of character would go with it. Well, wouldn't that indicate, you see, that the influence those things have on earth would lead life on earth to not only be very different, but perhaps even impossible? Maybe it's fair to say that with this designer, might you now appreciate as we approach the bottom of that slide, isn't it true that where there is design, there had to have been an intelligence greater than the design that is seen? We're all aware of that truth. The Bible, might I say, even highlights it in Hebrews 3 verse 4. Every house has a builder, and the one who builds the house is greater than the house. That's obvious, isn't it? The intelligence, the characteristic that goes with the builder of the house is greater than the house that is built. Well, so it is with the universe. If the universe details the majesty that accords to it, then surely the one that designed it, the character of its designer is greater than it is. The nature of that, I would suggest, is sufficiently evident that it's worthy of perhaps a few more comments. And so it is on this next slide. There are a number of presentations in scientific circles which stand directly opposed to this concept. There are those who will rather amazingly look at the order, the regularity, the matchless beauty that goes with this universe and somehow claim that it came about accidentally or somehow that it came out as a result of a massive explosion. May I suggest that that seemingly is nonsensical in light of the fact that everything that has designed must have been designed by someone. It is with that in mind, you might note that text I invited you to consider earlier. It's true that as the Hebrew writer used that idea in Hebrews 3, he was making the point that the law that one appreciates, the law that is the presentation of God, demands that one greater than the law have been the one that designed it. But the application of that idea and principle to something such as the universe or even parts of it surely is an easy consideration to make. That text in Hebrews chapter 3 only urges us to note a host of passages that specifically speak about the God of heaven as the designer, as the lawgiver, as the founder and creator of this universe. The opening chapter of the Bible is abundantly clear, isn't it? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. 
the opening pronouncement in all of the amazing book we call the Bible is that. And 13 verses later in Genesis 1.14, now referring to the fourth day of His creative activity, He pointed out that the sun and the moon and the stars, He spoke them into existence and He put them in their placement. Notice that they did not come about as the result of some mindless explosion. They came about due to the specific and designed direction of the God of heaven. Together with those verses... Psalm 8, verse 3, speaks about, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers which thou hast ordained. Now notice the psalmist made that statement. David, as he reflected on what he could see in his day, and it admittedly was much less than what we can see with our current telescopes, even he affirmed, When I consider the work of thy fingers, God made it. He made it. He created, He fashioned it. And as He placed these matters into existence and into the orderliness of their placement, it should be a constant reminder of His infinite design. Aren't we reminded in Psalm 147 verse 5 that His understanding is infinite? Maybe two final verses would be Job 26 13 as well as Hebrews 11 verse 3. It's the latter one of those two which it would seem would speak rather notable volumes given tonight's lesson. We all know that the 11th chapter of Hebrews is a chapter that details the essence of faith and urges us to appreciate this great honor roll of those who in days gone by acted in faith toward God. But yet the first one in that rather unforgettable list is this. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God, so that things which are made were not made of things which do appear. In other words, we understand that it was not by a matter of making it out of something already in existence. God spoke these things into existence. And in so doing, that is certainly a reminder, a very direct one of His greatness, His sheer awesomeness. Maybe two final points. And this opening observation, at least, will then be ready to lead us to the next one. Tonight, Brother Cale read from Psalm 19, verse 1. That text is the one I chose as the lesson text for this message this evening. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork. Isn't it true, then, in light of our opening observations this evening, the heavens explicitly declare, the sheer glory of God, His capacity, His capability. Isn't it true in regard to that, if our God can bring this universe into its, into its existence with the characteristics that it now has, the features that it displays, that which it exhibits, is it not evident that His greatness is far beyond what this universe would indicate? For did we not learn a moment ago the greater surely is a designer than is that which it designs or He designs. This universe is marvelous. It is so large, and yet it displays such intricacy, such complexity, such amazing character, and yet God must be greater still. By the way, didn't that indicate that if our God could make a universe like this, as remarkable, as tremendous as it is, what must heaven be like? What must heaven be like 
if the book of Revelation indicates that this heavenly abode is grander still than anything earth has to offer, doesn't that indicate that the view that apparently one might have in heaven, whatever that view might well be, surely it would seem would be far grander, far more remarkable than even the view you and I now enjoy. Certainly, in light of that, look at some of these pictures. That picture is a so-called Hubble Deep Field. It was a picture that was made well observable and notable from the Hubble Space Telescope a few years ago. As the Hubble Telescope peers into the recesses of the distant parts of the sky, you'll notice objects appearing in vast numbers. And we now recognize that each and every one of those dots, each and every one of those impressive figures, it's not merely a star, it's a galaxy consisting itself of likely millions of individual stars. That's just one picture from the Hubble Space Telescope. Doesn't it give us at least a view of the magnitude of this universe in which we live? If every one of the dots on that is a galaxy itself consisting of millions or more stars, doesn't it again remind us God made this universe. Its vastness is amazing. Its magnitude is sheer stunning. The next picture is this one. This is a somewhat closer picture. It too highlights a number of figures. I might ask you to notice there is a beautiful spiral galaxy there on the right, about two-thirds of the way from the top. But if you look near the bottom, there's actually a galaxy you're seeing almost edge on. The galaxies come in all kinds of orientations, and again, they consist of millions of stars. And quite often, at their center are black holes and other incredibly interesting astronomical objects. This picture is much more recent. It was only taken a few months ago by the Hubble Space Telescope. Telescopes on Earth can never see the fineness and the detail that goes with these. I might invite you to notice some of the color of those dots are different. Some of them appear brighter than others. Some of them, due to the difference in the color, are at different temperatures. And yet now we understand a bit more about all of that. This next slide is one that brings us to a second observation. I've entitled it, The Testimony of God's Excellency. This universe, and surely as we have come to appreciate it more and more finely, to those who have respect for the Word of God, and to those who have respect for God's creative activity, it only gives us in our hearts a much grander appreciation of our God who made it. This slide, I would think, presents before us a number of verses that also encourage us to feel that way. I noticed with you a moment ago in Psalm 8, verses 1, 2, and 3. Specifically in Psalm 8, we highlighted a moment ago the fact that the heavens are the work of God's fingers. As He put in place the stars and the other elements of this universe. But the latter part of that same verse says that as we give consideration to that, it leads us to note this, what is man that thou art mindful of him? May we never forget, as remarkable as this universe appears, the human being is greater still. We are a greater indication of the marvel of His excellency 
the working of the human brain and the other aspects of life as we now know it and that which we look forward to in life beyond. It truly is a fascinating reminder of sure, the sheer excellency of God's creation. Some additional pictures which zero in on a few other parts of our universe. I have in fact given you the name of some of these. That is the Horsehead Nebula. It is actually a rather vast picture. You'll note about the middle of that slide, doesn't it look a bit like a horse's head? That nebula is a composition of a vast amount of dust and other things that are known to exist in this distant part of the universe. But I think it fascinating. It's called the Horsehead Nebula. The Hubble Space Telescope has made available to us some impressive images of this, even from a number of various parts of the electromagnetic spectrum. Here's a picture of a couple of galaxies that are interacting with each other. And again, you can see the colors which are indicative of the temperature. And you can see from top and bottom again how that there is a large amount of tension between the various portions in the distant parts of this universe. I wouldn't want you to be misled. Those two are very, very far apart from our understanding. We're talking millions and millions and millions of miles apart. But yet on the universal scheme of things, look how close they appear. That picture of those interacting galaxies maybe leads you to another nebula. The cat's eye nebula. Doesn't it remind you in one way of a cat's eye? Now we know the eye of a cat has a pupil that's not round like ours. It's more elongated top to bottom. And yet, as you can imagine, look at the various orders. Some astronomers have even recognized and counted upwards of nine, as many as eleven of those rings surrounding this nebula, which must be indicative, it would seem, of a very strong set of interactions taking place in its middle. We still don't know what they may be. But isn't it a reminder, our God made that. And our God put in place something that would result in a picture that looks like that. The cat's eye nebula. One by one, as you look at all these pictures, perhaps it brings you to this one, which is again a fairly recent picture from the Hubble Space Telescope. Now, I realize as you look at it, you again see lots of bright dots and lots of bright lights. Some of them are stars, some of them are galaxies. But one more time, would you note the difference and how that the density is greater there near the middle? Does that indicate some incredibly interesting physics taking place there? Scientists are yet to determine. Astrophysicists are yet to understand it all. But one more time, it's easy to see how different the color is in many of those dots. Some of them are much more blue, some of them are more white. Others are far different colors yet, indicative of the difference in temperature and thus the difference in what's taking place actually in the thermal scheme of things. Let's go back to that previous slide then and finish our discussion by noting somewhat about the glory attached to not only the things we've just seen, but so many others that might have been listed. The glory that you and I visibly see in the nature of pictures like these, and yet so many others, helps us see that God's glory is greater than any of them because, again, God made them. 
And God put in place the laws of physics and astronomy that have led to that behavior. In Psalm 113, verse 4, as well as Psalm 57, verse 11, there is a rather direct reminder that the design, the behavior, the characteristics of the heavens are explicitly due to the creative activity and the characteristic of God Himself. He did it. May I then suggest it would be wrong for us to then direct the glory for those things to anybody or anything else, be it an explosion or otherwise. I would suggest that we keep in mind Revelation 4 verse 8, where there we're reminded that the writer of the Revelation, John, rather directly said that due to God's creation, He is rightly due the glory that goes with that creation. And that surely applies to the features that we are seeing tonight in the world of astronomy. The excellency of the creation. As you and I close that slide, passing through those same pictures that we noted earlier, may we make a third observation. This one connected to the planet on which we happen to be living planet Earth. So far tonight, I've asked you to notice in several pictures that there are galaxies that contain millions and perhaps billions of stars. And scientists and astronomers have for a long time looked with interest to find a planet like this one. A planet wherein you might have water, where you might have, in fact, ice as well as steam as well as liquid water all in existence because the temperature on that planet would permit it. And a planet that's close enough to some source of energy such as a sun that in fact there would be a planet like planet Earth. I think we're all well aware that though astronomers have often spoken about extrasolar planets and they've often gotten excited about the possible existence of such of one like Earth Nothing like earth has ever been found. Nothing like this planet on which we walk has ever been even closely observed. Doesn't that highlight the earth is a pretty special place? A pretty unique place? A pretty remarkable place? And so on this slide, could I invite you to look at Isaiah 45 verse 18 as the opening observation. As that particular verse is highlighted, the writer Isaiah very clearly speaking about earth said, Earth God made to be inhabited. Now may I invite you to note the phraseology. It's very special, isn't it? There's lots of other stars and lots of other things that might be regarded in one way or another as a planet. But earth was made to be inhabited. Earth was made so that the human family could survive on it. It has all the necessary ingredients such as an atmosphere of oxygen that you and I can breathe and water readily available and a temperature span and other features that make this planet special, unique, and remarkable. Not only is Isaiah 45 a particularly special passage in that regard, you may notice Psalm 115 verse 16 wherein there were no. it is noted that God gave earth to the human family. In other words, He prepared it for us. He prepared it so that we would have a place to be regarded as suitable for us. It is in that regard that that same idea is used 
in 2 Peter chapter 3, and perhaps we remember the text well, wherein it is referenced that there is to be a new heavens and a new earth. Now, many have become confused about the nature of a new earth. In fact, some religious groups teach that this earth is to be remade, is to be perfected. That's not what that passage is teaching. In fact, as we'll see shortly later in our lesson tonight, the earth is going to be burned up at some point, and the entirety of the universe will along with it. What that statement about a new heavens and a new earth means is there is a new place of abode that will provide all the necessary ingredients for a full existence. It won't be on this physical planet. In fact, you and I know that carefully we look for it in heaven. It is with that statement perhaps made. I would invite you to notice in Genesis 1 verses 26 and 27 that God made man in His image, in His likeness. And He prepared a place wherein this special creation of His could in fact dwell. Mankind, of course, is not an animal. But you'll notice that He did prepare a very special universe in which the human family could dwell. And not just a special universe, a special planet in it. We call it earth. There's a remarkable demonstration in the book of Hebrews about the nature of God's love for man in the coming of the Christ. And have you ever reflected on the fact Christ came to earth? He came to this planet. It's not that He went to Mars or to Venus or to some other planet. He came here because man is here, because the human family is here. And so Christ came here, Hebrews 2.14, and shed before us the nature of what it was like to appreciate the love of God. This third illustration, this third consideration of the night about the specialness of planet earth does bring me to that fourth point to which I briefly referred a moment ago. This universe, as exquisite as it is, as remarkable as it is, it is not permanent. That is to say, it is not eternal. It is going to be destroyed at some point. You and I do not know when. There are no signs given with respect to the prediction of that moment. But the Word of God is rather abundantly clear that it is going to be destroyed. Consider with me some of these passages. The Old Testament had prophesied that it would be so. In the 102nd Psalm, the writer, in fact, rather directly pointed out that just like you would roll up a garment and put it away, so too the universe is going to be rolled up at some point. That is to say, it is to be destroyed. And in the New Testament, the Hebrew writer quotes that passage in Hebrews chapter 1, and in fact, makes the application rather clear. The universe is not eternal. Maybe the clearest passage of all is in the third chapter of Second Peter. Verse number 10 of that chapter reads in this very memorable way, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Now, as Peter wrote that, he was, of course, making a very dramatic point. He said, The old world was destroyed by water in the days of Noah, but the last destruction shall not be by water. It shall be by fire. This universe, did you note the wording? Peter said, Even down to the elements... The individual atoms that make this place up, 
even they shall be consumed. Even they shall be destroyed in the great conflagration of that great and final day. As Peter made that observation, he pointed it out and used it to ask us a very penetrating question, and I will ask all of us the same. It's verse 11, the very next verse of that same chapter. Peter asked it this way, "...seeing then that all these things shall be destroyed, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? If this universe and everything in it is one day to be burned up, why do I work so hard and give my only attention to acquiring things of this earth?" And yet some people do. Yet many people do. They give all their life for only those things that are someday to be burned up. In the words of Peter, shouldn't we be far more wise and direct the matters of my life to what is of godliness and what is of holiness and what is going to last beyond the destruction of this universe? Surely the wisdom would lead us to say yes as the answer to that. This fourth observation about the universe being destroyed brings me to the fifth and final one of the night. A few basic facts about astronomy. Facts which, again, can lead us into some reflection in the Word of God, but facts which in many ways can be so faith-building. First of all, the purpose of the heavenly bodies. That's explained to us in Genesis 1.14. It is for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. Now, you'll notice that those words themselves indicate a regularity in the motion of the heavenly bodies. Again, that's what astronomy means, the law of the stars. That regularity is only highlighted by a few additional facts which astronomy has often found remarkable. In Job 26, verse number 7, there is a relative empty space in the direction of due north. That is to say, if you point a telescope toward the North Star, you kind of interestingly see the North Star, but oddly enough, you don't see a lot of things around it. There's much fewer stars in that direction compared to the other directions to which you would point a telescope. May I ask, Job 26.7 says that's the case. And that book was written thousands of years before the first telescope was ever invented. How did Job know it? How did Job know that there was such a dearth of stars in that direction? May I suggest, it surely could not have been by observation alone. You and I know God told him. We know that God informed him, in essence, providing revelation and matters like that to him, and Job recorded it for you and for me. Not only that, in that very same chapter and even some others near it, we learn something about the shape of earth. Now we know rather easily that the human family at times have pondered, is earth flat? There was a time in the ancient world when that was the prevailing view, that earth was flat. If you get close enough to the edge, you might fall off. Well, we now know better than that. But isn't it amazing? The Bible says that it's not flat. The Word of God says that the earth is round. May I ask, how did those writers, how did the Bible writers know that long before there were any of the mariners that circumnavigated the globe, that traveled all the way around it and appreciated the fact that it wasn't flat? 
the verses I could readily list would be Isaiah 40, verse 22, as well as Proverbs 8, verse 27, both indicating that the earth is a circle. In essence, it's round. One more time, doesn't that build our faith to know that this book is due to a God who made it? He knew what the shape was, and He, in fact, delivered that information to those of the long ago and wrote it down before scientists of themselves ever discovered it. Beyond that, what about that which supports the earth? Some of the ancient civilizations had some very unusual ideas about that. The Babylonians thought that the earth sat upon the back of an elephant. Oddly enough, the ancient Egyptians thought that it was on a stack of turtles. Interestingly enough, the ancient Greeks thought that one of their gods, Atlas, held up the earth. Well, we now know, and the telescopes have easily shown, as our astronauts have traveled into outer space and turned their camera back to see earth, you don't see anything supporting it. We now know a great deal about the force due to gravity, and how that that connection to the sun provides us the orbit in which we, of course, reside. But the earth isn't sitting on the back of turtles or the back of elephants or on the back of a man. You and I know the Bible, of course, testifies to some of the features that we might call the law of causality. Every material effect must have an adequate antecedent cause. And not only is astronomy consistent with that idea, but notice how often the Bible reminds us of it. Genesis 1 verse 1, the verse we noted earlier. In Psalm 33 verses 6 through 9, there we are rather dramatically told the greatness of what God made in His voice brought all these things into existence. As Jesus Christ carried out the creation... Detailed in Colossians 1, verses 16 and 17, He brought these things about. It's certainly true that there's a fair amount of disagreement between the thoughts of science by itself and the presentation of the Word of God on these matters tonight. But isn't it true that our faith can be grounded, absolutely, even from a consideration of astronomy, into the nature of the law of the stars? Let's conclude our lesson this way. As I mentioned, it was my hope that the lesson could be a dramatic faith-building exercise tonight, reminding us that though we live on earth, and earth is but one small part of this grand and vast universe, every element of this universe and even the particulars of earth remind us that God made it, He created it, He placed it in the regularity of its order, and He overrules today the features of what shall persist. In Genesis 8, verse 22, the Word of God says that until the end, whenever that shall be, seed time and harvest and cold and hot are going to remain. Now, as I mentioned earlier, we don't know when the end of time is going to be. We don't know the particulars of that because even the Lord said in Mark chapter 13 that that was not something that any signs would directly tell us. But what the Lord did tell us is the pertinent thing is to be ready, to always live prepared to go any time. Is that the situation for you and me tonight? Astronomy should be a constant reminder that our God overrules all things, and what He does, He does well. Tonight, if you're not a faithful member of the body of Christ, why don't you become one? If you've never become a Christian, 
believe in the Lord, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. If you have become a Christian, but you haven't lived faithfully to that calling, Ephesians 4 verses 1 to 3 reminds you, then it's time to make some changes. The Bible calls that repentance. You can come back to your first love, Revelation 2.5, and you could perhaps appreciate astronomical things like never before, being reminded of who God is and what God has done. If we could be of assistance in either of these ways, it'd be our joy and our delight to do that while together we stand and while we sing.